Thank you all for being here. Appreciate you coming out and worshiping God with us. My name is Chad Little. Um, as Matt mentioned, Scott um, and the family are at a family camp for, uh, with kid, kids with diabetes. So if we can just pray that they'll have a refreshing time there and uh, be able to enjoy the weekend. Um, and I have the privilege of bringing the message today. Um, so one thing before I really get started, that uh, because I'm new to this, right, I think this is sermon number seven, I've even lost track. So um, just the, the process of, of preparing a sermon, I really do like, recommend that everybody does this. Even if you're not going to preach in front of a church, take a couple months, take a year, and just pick a passage and work through it. Like, I just, you don't read the Bible the way you read it when you start to put words on paper and realize half of what you're thinking was amazing is just rubbish. And the Bible doesn't even say that. And you go through this process, like studying is, is so, so different when you're preparing something like this. So I just encourage, like, we should all be doing this. Don't leave it to Pastor Scott. Um, but with that being said, let's, let's get started. So we've been walking through a sermon series talking about the difference that Jesus makes in our lives and uh, Jesus as an action. So three weeks ago, Pastor Scott told us that Jesus was a gift of hope and that he's overcome the plague of the invasive species of sin that uh, has uh, affected us. Then two weeks ago, he talked about Jesus as a despised servant and how he, Jesus took the dirty jobs of our lives and, and on, on our behalf. Last week, he talked about Jesus as a prophet and how Jesus represented God to us and spoke God's truth to us. So today, I get to examine what it means that Jesus is our King. Our text today is Psalm 2. Um, so if you have your Bible or a phone, you can open to that and... I'll also have it on the screen so you can follow along there. But let's just read our text today, Psalm 2. Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let, let's stop there for just one second. Just one little thing. When you see LORD in uh, the middle there in all caps, that is the, the sacred name of God that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush. So the Jewish people, they will not even say that name, right? They, they will say Hashem, which means the name, or they'll say Adonai, which is LORD. So in English, we just do LORD and do all caps. So if you see that in your Bible in all caps, that's what's happening there. That appears over 6,000 times in our Bibles. And then anointed one, I think is important to look at. Anointed one is the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is what we translate as Messiah. Or if we say Jesus Christ, Christ is that Greek translation of Messiah. So anointed one here is Messiah, Christ, anointed one. So the kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then, in anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Now then, you kings, act wisely. 
Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities for his anger flares up in an instant. But what joy for all who take refuge in him. Okay, G.K. Chesterton, 115 years ago, as he was investigating Christianity, he said he was intrigued by two criticisms that came from two opposite sides of Christianity. One of the, one of the criticisms was people saying, I'll never become a Christian because it's so violent and angry and hateful. It's, I, it's, it's horrible. I can't follow a God like that. And equally vehemently from the other side, I can't become a Christian because it's so weak and meek and mild. It's, it's, and and G.K. Chesterton wrote, he was very intrigued by something that could contain both of those criticisms. How does that happen, right? And I think this passage here comes as, as when we read that, it's a little nerve-wracking on how angry and the vengeance of God. And so I wanted to address that a little bit today. Um, and it, I think it brings up some questions. And we can't quite read it very well up there, but is God good? And is God in control? So let's take some time to examine God's justice and judgment. Walking towards the uncomfortableness will help us to begin to answer these questions of whether God's good and if he's in power. Abraham Heschel, commenting on God's anger in the Bible, says in his book, The Prophets, The prophets never portray God's anger as something that cannot be accounted for, unpredictable, irrational. It is never a spontaneous outburst, but a reaction occasioned by the conduct of humans and motivated by concern for right and wrong. It might even be helpful to back up a bit and look at who is God. And a key verse in the Bible is when God describes himself in Exodus 34. And it says there, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. So I think starting there and knowing of God's patient, patience and unfailing love, but also that he's not going to let the guilty go unpunished, helps us with the right foundation. When, when God self-describes, we should listen. So that's who our God is. But there's sometimes a, still a perception of this God when we think of his justice. We don't always believe that God is good. So we're prone to think that his justice, his judgments are arbitrary or maybe even capricious. When I think this way, it reminds me of an ironic saying that I saw many years ago in a lumberyard office. Maybe you're familiar with this. The beatings will continue until morale improves. Sometimes I think that's our concept of God's justice. It's like, why, why, why would I run to this being that's punishing me? But I think that that's, that is um, a wrong concept. But the Bible, sometimes if it's misread, can even reinforce that. One example of this is in Isaiah 9. In uh, verse 13, uh, well, right before this verse, it talks about that the Lord's anger will not be satisfied. His fist is poised to strike. And then it says this, Yet the people will not turn back to the one who strikes them, nor will they seek the Lord of hosts. Right? The, the beatings will continue till morale improves. 
But the image here, as, as we look at this, I think is an image, if we, if we imagine the umbrella of God's authority, and if we imagine safety and security underneath that umbrella, and then we think of our rebellion as walking outside that umbrella, and then we experience the judgment of God, which direction do you want to run? Right? Sometimes you think, like, I want to run away from the source of this judgment. But really, safety and security is in God's presence, underneath that umbrella of his authority. And so, I want us to think of direction. I want us to think of, really, as we start to question God's judgment, I think it gets down to, do we disbelieve that God is good? Because if we do believe God is good, then that... that source is, is okay and healthy and good. So I thought it would be helpful just to review a few illustrations of God's judgment in our Bible and um, to give us like two categories and perspectives on God's anger, wrath, and judgment. So this is all helping to try to answer for us whether God is good and or in control. So if you'll look through um, your Bible, you'll see, especially for people that are outside, um, they're not the people of God, that God responds to the cry of oppression. We see this first in the story of Sodom. Um, in Genesis 18:21. God says he's going to come down and see if they deserve destruction because its outcry has come to me. That word outcry is the Hebrew word ze'ekah, and it really does mean that, that cry of oppression. So God is listening for that cry of oppression. And... When we think of Sodom, we kind of probably have uh, one view, one thought of why judgment came upon Sodom. But Ezekiel 16.49 is really fascinating because it says this, Behold, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom, pride, gluttony, and careless ease. And she did not strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Is that what you were thinking when you thought of the sins of Sodom? Did you know that one of the laws of Torah, there's one law that mentions God's anger. And this is in Exodus 22. And it says, you must not mistreat a widow or orphan. If you mistreat them in any way and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. My wrath will burn hot. God cares how we treat people, especially how we treat the most vulnerable in our society. So we'll also see the cry of oppression in the story of Pharaoh in Egypt. When, um, when Pharaoh enslaves the, the people of Israel, it says in Exodus 3.7 that the Lord heard their cry because of their slave masters. For I know their pains, God said to Moses. God then gives Pharaoh multiple chances to change, but Pharaoh doesn't. God cares how we treat the people around us. He's a king that hears the cry of oppression and will make things right. So the second category of examples is what I would like to call bad apples. It's uh, in situations where God's starting a new movement, whether it's, it's creation or whether it's beginning the nation of Israel or even the early church. There's, there's these moments where there's a new movement that we'll see God is extremely immediately harsh and judges his people 
quickly. Um, the, very quickly, we'll go through just the golden calf in Exodus 32. God comes down, and, and, and uh, I think there's a plague in that one. We see Nadab and Abihu, the first two sons of Aaron, the priests, that come in drunk into the tabernacle, and God does not, does not approve of that. We see Korah's rebellion in number 16, where the earth swallows up and takes a whole section of people who are questioning Moses as leader. We see despising God's provision just a few chapters later, when they're complaining about the very food that's keeping them alive in the wilderness. And then for our New Testament example, in Acts 5, we see Ananias and Sapphira. It's a very unique uh, instance where at the beginning of this new movement, if, if we get it wrong, Ananias and Sapphira, they pretended to be generous. Right? How corrupting is that? If, if God allows that to happen, especially as things are just starting, like this, this, things will spiral out of control. So I think we can see that all these examples are swift and certain. They stand out because of their immediacy. God seems to want to remove these bad apples quickly before they spoil the whole bunch. Each one of these instances show a God that's quickly judging behavior that would ultimately corrupt this new nation. He's giving us stories and lessons to help us understand how seriously this king takes rebellion. So God is not okay when we fail to take care of the vulnerable around us, and when we make their lives even more difficult, he hears the cry of the oppressed. And as God was starting creation, starting a nation, and showing what Jesus' authority looked like, at the beginning of new movements, God makes it clear that when his people's attitudes and actions do not represent him well, he's going to move. Especially since it's our mission and purpose to represent him in the world. If we were to look at the life of Jesus, we'd notice that he, God in human flesh, king of the universe, he was most harsh to the religious people. He was talking to church people. That's when he was telling, calling, when he was name calling and listing sins. He's talking to us. Jesus isn't backing down from the standard that we see in earlier stories. In fact, he raises the bar. Jesus not only condemns wrong actions, he, commit, he condemns wrong thinking. Consider Mark seven, verses twenty through twenty-three. Jesus said, "It is what comes out from man that makes the man unholy. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil intentions." Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustfulness, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and make the man unholy. That's seriously raising the bar. But yet, God actually, with all of our sin, responds with unbelievable patience and forgiveness. He responds with love in the midst of correction. Isaiah 44.22 says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. God's always inviting us back into right right relationship with himself, inviting us back under that umbrella of of his authority. If he punishes us, it's so that we'll stop misrepresenting him to the world around us and come back into right relationship with him. Isaiah 55 is another great example of God's patience. Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he's near. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God for he will forgive generously. Or how about Lamentations 
3, 31 through 33, the tiny bit of hope in a whole book of lament. God has been punishing his people, but in the middle of Lamentations, it has this nugget. For no one is abandoned by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love. For he does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. And one final example from Peter's letter to the churches. In 2 Peter 2, 3, 9, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. So I think it's easy to look at the big sins that people commit and understand the world would be better if actions of systemic oppression, hatred, greed, and murder, etc. were stopped. But what about those tiny seeds of rebellion in our own hearts, in our own lives? So to think of a, a very a small illustration, here's a picture of, of me on the left, my brother, and my mom. Here I am, age four. And this, at this table, this table holds a, a special memory for me. This, this was the moment when my parents decided to teach my, par- my brother and I some manners. And at one evening, they said, you can't leave the table until you say, may I please be excused. Up until then, I think we had to say, like, can I leave or something like that. And we had to take our, pla- our plates to the, to the sink. But in, re- in response to this, my brother said, may I please be excused? I'm like, yeah. And he takes his plate to the sink, but not little Chad, not little four-year-old <laughs> Chad. No, no, that was way too many words to remember. This is totally, this is not the deal. This is, I sat there for two hours crying, saying I couldn't say it, saying, excuse me, please, doing every variation except for, may I please be excused, right? It's a four-year-old tantrum, but I really do think that that's that little seed of rebellion that's in all of our hearts, right? I still, I still recognize it at times. We're like, I just, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it that way. But here I am walking out from underneath that umbrella. So if we go back to Psalm 2, where we started, we see those kings plotting to throw off the chains of God, right? And we kind of, we react to that like, I I don't know, like evil, evil is a thing. And hopefully we all react that evil should be stomped out, right? But those little seeds of evil are in us. And I start to recognize myself in these kings. And especially in those verses at the end when it said, now then... You kings, let's see, I'm moving forward. Now then, you kings, act wisely. I feel like the tone shifts towards the end of the psalm, and it's more inclusive. And it's that warning. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. But what joy for all who take refuge in him is how that that psalm ends. Um, I don't think we have time for it. That we're going to skip two slides. But this prayer is, um, this psalm is prayed by Peter in Acts 4. And I think that's a fascinating part of the study of this psalm to see how Peter uses that in Acts 4. Um, but that, so that then is just kind of a brief introduction and really skimming the surface of why I believe God's in control. He knows what's going on and he will judge human behavior. But he is patient, and he wants everyone to turn back to him. We all have that opportunity. So when I think of the question of whether God is good or not, I quickly think of Jesus' life and death. So we're kind of transitioning now. Um, That was 
that was kind of thinking about, is, is God in control? And when we look at a world that maybe looks out of control, is there, there will be justice eventually. So with the question of, is God good? Um, I, I immediately thought of Revelation 5. This was something a couple years ago, just in reading Revelation 5. Um, it just really describes what I, I think as the goodness of God. So Revelation 5 describes a vision that John, the author, has. In this vision, John is seeing how God will judge the world at the end of times. And the vision starts with, with God Almighty sitting on the throne, and in his hand he's holding a sealed scroll. And for some reason, he needs a human to open this scroll. And he looks around, and there's nobody to open the scroll. An angel shouts out, who is worthy to open the scroll? But no one answers. And John, when he sees this, he starts to weep. And I thought about, why, why is he weeping? And I imagine that John's weeping because Adam and Eve, they should have been able to open the scroll. Moses, he should have been able to open the scroll. King David, he should open the scroll. Even the disciples, John himself, I imagine him weeping like, I'm not worthy to open the scroll. All of us, all of us have failed in some way and we're all unworthy. And John weeps at this realization. But then he hears this. Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so John looks up, but then it's the plot twist. He looks up expecting to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king. But then he sees a lamb that looked at if, as if it had been slaughtered. Our God, our king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has sacrificed himself on our behalf. Jesus has taken our judgment and paid the penalty for our rebellion. And the host of heaven, they sing a few verses later in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. This is the song worthy of a king. This is the proper recognition to the only authority who means anything. So what do you think our response to this should be? Paul. Paul in Romans 12 gives us a wonderful starting point. In Romans 12:1, Paul writes, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. God asks for us to live with him with every fiber of our being. God asks for this oath of fealty in response to him giving his life for us. The rest of the 12th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome lays out an amazingly practical way of life that will tr transform the world. Paul, at the end of this chapter, says this, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. That's the type of living sacrifice our God is looking for. Have your enemies over for a meal. Jesus, as our king, is good, and he is in control, no matter what we think as we look around us. 
The question then becomes whether he is king over your life. Do you allow Jesus' rule and reign to permeate your life? Do you step out from under the umbrella of that authority and try to do your own thing? So I contend that God is good and our king is in control. We can trust him and we can invite his rule and reign into our lives to transform us into good reflections of him. As the worship team comes forward, I'd like to just look at four implications uh, from this message. Implication number one, no matter what it looks like, God is king. I think that many times it's easy to look around and think that either God's not good or he's not in control, but I do, I do think that he's both of those things. And I think that we can be encouraged that even when, when our lives maybe are in chaos, uh, things aren't going right, that God is sovereign over all that. And the safest place to be is underneath that authority. Implication number two, moving towards God's justice is the correct direction. Sometimes we want to run the opposite direction, but I think the only safety is moving underneath that umbrella of God's authority. That's where we're in right relationship with our God, and we can represent Him well. Implication number three, Jesus' victory through His sacrifice shows that He's both good and in control. I can't think of a better illustration than God of the universe, King of the universe, creator of everything, dying on our behalf. And implication number four, the only logical response to Jesus' loving sacrifice is to love others. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that you are King. Thank you that you, um, you gave everything for that. I ask that you would just help us recognize those little seeds of rebellion in our lives, that you'd um, crush those with your judgment and your justice, and that through that fire of judgment that our lives would just become better representations of who you are, your love, your kindness, your, um, your compassion. And that we'd, as our hearts are transformed by your love and your life, that we'd be able to transform the world around us, God. We love you. Amen. Thanks.